0: This evening God's word comes to us from First Samuel chapter 7, page 230 in the Bibles and the pews. Before we read, and before we pray, maybe a little rehearsal of the events of First Samuel will help us, since this is a history. Maybe you remember the wonderful Hannah praying and pleading for a son. Hers is the first prayer in the whole of this book. We'll find the second this evening. She prays. She pleads for a child. God answers. Hannah rejoices in the victory of God, not just over Penina, but over all the enemies of God who has given a son to rule. And then we read about Samuel growing up, hearing the voice of the Lord, the word of God coming to the people of Israel, but God's people, heart of heart, heart of ear, don't hear it. They're not really interested in God's prophet whom He's raised up. And so instead of going to the word and to the testimony, they take the ark of the testimony and run with it into battle against the Philistines, hoping that like some sort of a, a charm, an amulet, the ark will protect them from harm and bring victory over their enemies. But God is not to be treated like that. And so they are utterly overwhelmed. The ark is taken. Israel's defeat is astonishing. There is great sorrow on their part, but meanwhile, as the Philistines apparently win the battle, they find out very quickly that their gods have no protection against the God of the Exodus, against the God who brought down the gods of Egypt. And so Dagon falls, and the Philistines begin to fall to apparently the bubonic plague and the mice. And finally, the Ark, with much rejoicing on Israel's part, is returned. And Israel still hasn't learned the lesson. And so, looking into the ark, looking into the secret things of God, irreverently treating God's things once again, they are struck just as the Philistines were struck. And so we find them, First Samuel 7, 1, 20 years lamenting after the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll read. Father in heaven... We praise you that you are the God who knows our sins and yet in grace and love does not reject us but would teach us to hate them because we have something, because we have someone so gloriously better, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Prince and Savior, our Judge, we pray, O Lord our God, acknowledging that just as Israel was, so by nature are we, undeserving that we should ever approach you because our sins take such hold on us. And we feel that cycle, that terrible vacuum of the book of Judges in our own hearts and in the life of the church. And so we pray that you would send forth your light and your truth, that your word would come again to your people, that Jesus, by the word, would rule us, your spirit conquer us, giving to us that repentance which you seek, that faith which is necessary for our salvation, and that joy that is the certain result of your judgment. Draw near, we pray. And with trembling, we ask, draw near in judgment and in mercy. Hear us, for we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. First Samuel 7, verses 3 through 17, page 230 in the Pew Bibles. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shane, and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's holy and perfect and necessary word. Now, if you can remember that Samuel is set in the time of the judges, or really just at the conclusion of the time of the judges, that will help immensely. Did you notice that the word judge is used in our text? Samuel is judging Israel, and just For those who have been here, at least, when we've considered 1 Samuel, just reflect back a little bit further in 1 Samuel, Eli also was judging Israel, not doing a very good job, but he was judging. And before that, there were other judges. But now, the Lord himself enters into judgment, and his judgment, and this is crucially what I hope you'll hear this evening, his judgment is the help of his people. That's really not what we expect. When we think about the judgment of God, we tend to think about condemnation, about punishment. We tend to think about accusations and all the sins that we have. Indeed, that's there. But God's judgment is not only a condemnation of our sin. His judgment for his people always brings us into salvation. Always. His judgment is his people's help. We're going to look first, verses 3 through 11, at the Lord's decisive acts of judgment which rescue his people. And verses 12 through 17 we'll spend less time on. But I want you to notice this evening, decisive acts of judgment by which God rescues his people, and it starts with the people of God. When, chapter 7, verse 1, the ark goes up to the city or town of Kiriath-Jerim, There are no meetings called. There are no councils held. No one seems to be asking, what do we do now that the ark has returned? What does worship look like? What does God want us to do? It's kind of stunning, really. Twenty years. They're lamenting, but there doesn't appear to be any discussion. And yet, without any apparent coordination, outward coordination, without political mandates, something remarkable starts to happen. God's people mourn. They mourn, and their hearts begin to yearn for the Lord. This is not what we expect. If you remember the history of the judges, we don't really expect to see this sort of sorrow for lost fellowship, a yearning for restoration, weeping for, Over sins. It's happened many times before. God's people have wept many, many times. Think of the wilderness. How many times did they weep and say, oh, that we were back. If only we could have the the garlic and all that delicious food of Egypt. Oh, they wept. How many times did they weep for their sin? Israel has actually begun to change. They're not crying out to their idols. They're not trying to handle Yahweh like some kind of a weapon. They're simply throwing themselves before him. For him to do as he pleases. No longer is freedom, is dominion, is success at the center of their concerns. It is restored fellowship. And I suggest that for all of us, that is the beginning of a season of true mourning after God. When we no longer have at the center of our interests our own Fleshly desires, but a longing for renewed walking with God. That's new, and that can't be accomplished apart from the Spirit of God. They're not just weeping for the consequences. It says they're weeping for the Lord. All right. Revival, we could say. Beginning to break out. It's because they are beginning to sense not only what they've lost, but because they hear the word. Notice, chapters 4 through 6 have been a kind of parenthesis. The ark was taken by the Philistines, it's returned by the Philistines, and Samuel for three chapters of Israel's miserable fight with the, with the Philistines and lost to them. He's not even mentioned. And this is the man by whom God was returning his word. No mention of Samuel. Really pretty astonishing. God's great prophet, so neglected. And he's the only one. He's the only judge at the time. There's no evident leader apart from him. And now, for the first time in this whole nasty, downward-spiraling saga, the name of Samuel reappears. We read of him, 1 Samuel 7.3. Samuel begins to speak to the house of Israel. They hadn't gone to him before. And really, that's kind of one of those head-puzzling, head-shaking, puzzling things. Why didn't they go to him? They could have gone to Samuel. They could have asked him to pray before. Why didn't they pray? How much better things would have been not this lost 20 years? But defeated they were. And now Israel, in their defeat, is actually feeling broken, defeated by their sin. Just the right moment now. Samuel, in this moment of renewed affection, of a sincere understanding of the nature and the power and the control of sin, Samuel steps forward and he urges repentance. Not really what we would normally choose, but isn't this how it often is for us? Sometimes we, so to speak, need to go our way, like the prodigal, until we are sufficiently messed up by bad decisions and grieved by them until we have nowhere else to turn. And finally, our ears are opened because there's only one left speaking. That's how passionately stubborn and stiff-necked we really are by nature. And now the Lord begins by his prophet to speak, and Israel is actually ready to hear. All of this has happened because he has treated them as sons and disciplined them that they may not be condemned along with the world why we might begin to reflect at this point why did god permit the ark to be taken why this relational distance between god and his people all this time well it's really summed up in that wonderful word Eitzer, because the lord all along has been plotting the deliverance and the help of his people Well, Samuel begins to speak. He begins to take up his calling as God's judge. And he promises even that if Israel will indeed with all their heart, that's the language of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all your heart, turn to the Lord, turn away from your idols. If you will indeed do this, then yes, the Lord will most certainly deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines who continue to oppress Samuel is here behaving as a greater judge than any that has come before. There is this cycle all through the book of Judges, even into into Samuel of sin, sorrow, and salvation that keeps circling around and around. There's been sin, now there's sorrow, and Samuel speaks of salvation. He takes on the role of God's judge, a type of the Christ to come, And he instantly becomes the central figure of Israel's politics by calling them to put away their foreign gods and making the promise plain that their deliverance is at hand. This is when we learn, it's a striking moment in the text of this narrative. This is when we really learn what is the cause, the direct cause, of the Lord withholding himself from his people. It's because his people have embraced other gods. Of course, not only graven images, the gods like Dagon that had fallen, the Egyptian gods, the Ashtaroth, but really an unbelief of the Lord and a reliance upon other means, other hopes, other designs. As Calvin says, Our hearts, indeed, are idol factories. This is who we all can identify with. And astonishingly, a people so hard of heart, so inclined to turn in upon their gods, their false gods, and away from the only hope and help that they have, begin to put away their false gods. Notice what's happening. The kingdom of God is beginning to come with power. This is not just a narrative of a prophet and an ark and things going badly and maybe getting better and maybe not getting better. This is a narrative of a coming of a king. That is what Samuel is preparing us for, the coming of the king. Yes, David, to be sure, but the greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to whom all the promises given to David, will finally come. The kingdom of God begins to work with power. Inwardly, the people of God feel The judgment of God. They recognize their sin. God's judgment begins to do what it always does, to separate what is right, what is wrong, and to set right what is wrong, and to fix the idolatry that's in his people's hearts. He begins to judge them inwardly, and then he brings his judge, Samuel, his appointed man, to judge them outwardly. This is what we read. He calls them to Mizpah. And we read verse 6, Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This is not just a matter of settling civil complaints. It's really straightening out Israel's sins against the Lord and against each other. Think about Moses in the wilderness, judging the people of God, setting things right between man and man and between man and God. This is what Samuel now, a greater than Moses, one leading up to the great king, is doing. And it is an incredible moment of national unification. Notice the signs of a true revival. The kingdom of God coming and breaking in on his people. His people do several spiritual acts. And you can notice most of them right in verses 5 through 7. They lament. We've already considered that. They're lamenting not just their condition. They're lamenting lost fellowship with God. They repent of their idols and turn to the Lord. And they present themselves... To the Lord to to receive his judgment. They gather at Mizpah. They gather to renew covenant with God. And there are specific acts of covenant renewal and worship in which they engage. Strikingly, the first one that's mentioned here is they draw water and pour it out. And this is one that is really difficult to understand. It's not something that I think commentators are agreed on. However, think about the washing of water that would happen when a priest would come near to God with a sacrifice. The priest has to be cleansed with water. The sacrifice has to be cleansed. God's people are coming to him, pouring out the water in an illustration of their need for cleansing. And at the Feast of Tabernacles during the time of the Lord Jesus, we find that this was indeed what the Jews would practice at that feast. One commentary says that it was at that feast an extraordinary ceremony about which the rabbis inform us. Drawing water out of the pool of Siloam and pouring it mixed with wine on the sacrifice on the altar. There is a symbolism here of the lament, of the grief, of the tears. There is a symbol as well of the cleansing of the Spirit by his being poured out through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, notice also the people of God fast. Second time in Samuel, we notice a fast. Who was the first person? Do you remember? It's Hannah. Hannah again. Fast. They confess. And they are very straightforward here. We have sinned against the Lord. This is revival. This is the kingdom of God. You want to know what revival looks like in the church? It doesn't look like, at least not initially, glorious heydays of the gospel breaking out and people coming to Christ from all over the place. It looks like God's people really, deeply lamenting. Shouldn't we pray for that? We should pray for this, but as we do that, we need to recognize that it doesn't look appealing to our flesh or to the world, does it? It looks rather like something to sneer at. Think about how many times the church, because of its open sins, is rightly criticized by the world. Oh, you bunch of hypocrites. I wouldn't go to that group. Well, listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 4. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, it might really happen. (laughs) But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment... To begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a wonderful text. I'd like to explore it further, but just notice that wonderful statement for this evening. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What does revival look like when God's judgment comes to his church? Not just the judgment of punishment, but a judgment in which his church can openly recognize that despite our terrible, rotten corruption and sins against him, he still embraces us and disciplines us and draws us near as his children. Now just ask your unbelieving neighbor if they'd like to attend one of those revivals. You'll get sneered at, I suspect. But what do you say when the world says, well, that just, why would I want to be involved in that? I I think for starters, don't think that God's dealing with the sins and the hypocrisies of his church is going to stop with us. He is going to deal with all the sins of all peoples, and we just happen to be the example. You're next. Don't think that the sufferings of the church, either as Peter describes it in verse 16 of chapter 4, Don't think that the sufferings of the church for Christ are a sign that God is weak or that he's abandoned us. No, he has judged us in Christ, taken our wrath away in Christ, and in suffering determined to bring us into a much deeper and weightier fellowship. He brings us down to lament that he might bring joy in the morning. This he always does. So, a simple question for us that's a corporate question, but it's also a personal and individual question. Do you really want to see God work in your life? Maybe we should start asking for repentance. Maybe we should start asking for more tears. Well, we're not stopping with tears. There is judgment on the people of God, but there is also judgment on the enemies of God. God's help begins to come. The Philistines, notice this, in verse 8, sorry, verse 7, the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Now, don't think of this as some kind of a contingent of five guys. This is, quote-unquote, the five armies of the Philistines coming up against Israel. Oh, and by the way, Israel was gathering for worship. Do you think they brought their weapons with them? Do you think they even had their weapons with them? They probably were mostly taken away. Well, just notice this, how the world here is typified in the Philistines coming against the kingdom of God. They place their armies on a war footing because they perceive Israel's gathering to worship as the gathering of an army. I'm going to repeat that. When God's people gather in revival and lament and worship, it looks like an army. Interesting. Worship isn't neutral. Worship is war. We don't just come to enjoy fellowship. We don't just come to receive from Jesus. We come to gather at his side in opposition to all the powers of darkness. We assemble. Think about the... The Israelite pilgrims in the wilderness, we assemble, concentred on God in our midst, God pervading, God protecting his saints in antithesis to a world that hates Christ. We are, like Athanasius, contra mundum against the world. And so when we worship, whether that's with lament or praise, and usually there's going to be both, when we worship, we are in a titanic conflict, a gathered army against satanic powers. That doesn't sound very comfortable. You probably didn't come thinking this evening, you're ready for battle. If you're on the edge of your seat, that's actually a good thing because war is bloody and messy and tiring and uncomfortable And you just want to go home. But when the Philistines and the world look at the gathering of the church, they see a threat. Think of the multitudes that gather around the Lord Jesus. What do the religious leaders think? Think of the church in Acts, many souls being added to the church. What do the people think? Think in our day of the persecutions breaking out in places like China or Iran or North Korea. What does it look like when the church gathers? Looks like a fight. And so what do the kingdoms of this world do? Psalm 2. They gather themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. They have their own gathering, but it's a gathering rooted in fear, and they are right To fear. Because when two or three of Jesus' people gather together, he is in our midst. The incarnate Lord by his spirit, our mighty warrior. And so, even when our worship is with weeping, the world is in jeopardy. The powers and the kingdoms of this world are no match. They're ultimately vulnerable in their bluster and pride, and they know it. They are no match for the kingdom and the power of God because his kingdom rules over all. It is a stable kingdom, invulnerable, unable to be destroyed, founded on steadfast love and righteousness that endures. God spends no anxious nights wondering whether his defenses are going to hold. There are no moments when we may doubt His absolute and unconquerable power. God doesn't need to stomp around and boast and threaten. No, he's content and stable in his omnipotence. And this is why this really explains everything that has come to pass until now in 1 Samuel. Because it is a kingdom that can endure incongruity. Really astonishing. God is content in his omnipotence And so he is willing to do things with his people and his worship that seem utterly counterintuitive, paradoxical, and destructive. The Philistines kidnapping the ark, the symbol of his own righteousness, grace, and power, even in that moment when it seemed like all came crashing down for Israel, there were no cracks in the foundation of his throne. He is, he was, truly ruling. That's what we discover here. He really is ruling. Israel without a king, doing whatever is right in their own eyes, badly in need of saving, is still going to be ruled. The kingdom of God is going to come. God is going to root out their idols and their complacency. Okay, quickly moving on. The Philistines then attack. And their attack, we need to appreciate, is not just an attack on uh, an opposing kingdom. It is an attack on God's kingdom. And so they launch a raid. It's not desperate. It wouldn't appear. They're simply quashing one more Israelite rebellion. But isn't it striking that it happens just as they go to worship? This is an old trick of our enemy. You're familiar with this. You get in the car, and that's when the arguments have to happen, right? You get down to worship. You sit down, and as soon as the reading of the word begins, you have other things that urgently capture your attention. We saw this again and again in Karamoja. There was a time when I would go out to the village of Aquiam, and it was a place known for witchcraft, and almost every time, there was a terrible distraction. There was the loud motorbike. There was a sacrifice. One time in the middle of worship, just as the sermon was starting, a fight broke out, and I had to go and try to stop it because nobody could pay attention. This is our enemy's trick. He's not going to succeed. The kingdom of God is greater than that. Because his people respond theologically, they come to know the power of that kingdom. No longer is Israel's confidence in symbols and superstitions. They approach God by the mediator. They plead for Samuel to pray. They are afraid. Their past behavior has been in fear or anxiety for their own kingdom. March out and manipulate God. What a change. Samuel, pray for us. This is their first defensive act. Worship. They know it's going to be by the prayer of a mediator, by intercession of another, that they will be delivered. Friends, this is how we always need to think. How is the kingdom of God going to come? How is the kingdom of God going to come in our own lives? By The prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ That is the first great answer Then of course there's a sacrifice This is not God responding Coerced by a sacrifice Coerced by prayer But answering in love Because he has brought his purposes to pass In his people And so he strikes the Philistines with terrors First rats and bubonic plague And now thunder this is exactly what Hannah prayed for. 1 Samuel 2.10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. <laughs> Isn't it astonishing? All that she prays for is coming to pass. Here is this lone woman lamenting, crying out to God for a rescuer. And she prays, and God provides a son, and she prays, and God provides a later victory with thunder. Victory from the heavens themselves. God, who leads his people to repentance, triumphs over their enemies, and he does so ultimately through the work of the cross. Very quickly, verses 12 through 17. There is also God's continuing acts of judgment that preserve his people. Of course, the wonderful stone, a war memorial is set up. When we think about war memorials in our country, we think about... Commemorations of victories or defeats. We think of those who gave their lives in sacrifice and service for our country. But Israel's memorials are different. This is a very telling and significant difference. They do not only commemorate victories and defeats. They remember what God has done, and they give assurance of future help. As steady and firm as the rock itself, the monolith that Samuel sets up or as Joshua sets up the rocks taken out of the Jordan and placed inside the new the new land God promises to his people his help because his promises are laid in the bedrock of his gracious covenant secured to us in Christ Ebenezer up to this point God has helped us it's so astonishing. Samuel can say not just, well, we made it this far. Here's the boundary line. God sets up his, his line here. The Philistines can't cross this. He claims this area. All of those meanings are there. No. Samuel is saying, not only has God brought us to this physical boundary marker, but all the way along, when the ark was in Philistia, when Israel in the time of the judges was sinning, and God sent saviors, all Along. It was the Lord who was helping us. What a wonderful thing. Even the lament, even the humiliation of his church was God's help. Well, there's progress against the Philistines. They don't return, of course. And then there's the continuing judgment of God's prophet, a sort of wonderful. Demonstration that God is going to continue to judge his people in righteousness and uphold his promises. Samuel sets up a circuit. He goes around judging in all these different places. Year after year, the kingdom of God is indeed coming. I want to conclude with just a few observations briefly about the kingdom of God that we can see here. First this, that the Lord's rule in his people is evident when his people grieve for their sins. When the kingdom of God comes, it comes with sorrow for sins. It does bring joy in God and his righteousness, but it also comes with sorrow, with lament. When God intends to do a great work for his own name, when he intends to advance his kingdom significantly, he usually humbles his people. Don't be afraid of those low points. That's when we know God is preparing something better. Because, a second observation about the kingdom of God, when God's people weep for their sins, that is when he will stand up to defend us. Repentance is always something vulnerable, isn't it? When I confess my sins, I am saying, I can't defend it any longer Just as I can't hide it, which means I must have someone else to defend me. And then God steps forward and brings us the mercy of his son. It is mercy, a third observation. Revival is purely the work of our merciful and covenant-keeping God. It has been God all along at work in His people, for His people, helping His people. He insists on a real relationship with you and with me, and that will require a constant life of faith and repentance. We are helped fourthly to that faith and repentance by recognizing in a text like this one the coming judgment. Notice what happens here. If you look at the broad outlines of this narrative, what happens? God's people come to him for judgment. And then the pagan nations come. Both are judged. We expect many times that approaching God and his judgment falling on his people will bring destruction, but no, it only ever brings help. But when the pagan nations refusing to bow to King Jesus come, Then, dear friends, they will be judged with everlasting destruction. That day is coming. That day is soon upon us. We are in the last days. And so, as Revelation 15, 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, how we praise you for your judgments. Just and true are your ways. How we thank you, O Lord, that you, the God of judgment, have placed our judgment on your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that because he fell under your anger, we have been lifted up, and that because he has grieved our sin, we, in grieving our sin, are assured of what he purchased by redemption. O Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for true repentance in our own hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would come and your kingdom would be on evident display, even in the humiliation of your people, for our defense. Lord, we pray, do a great work. May your kingdom come and your will be done. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.